married couple that I, I think every married couple wants to believe that their marriage is completely insulated from the possibility of a threat of an extramarital affair. Now, I chose the word insulated specifically because by definition it means to prevent the passage of heat or electricity. And I like that because in terms that I understand, it means, you know, don't let someone else turn you on. And, uh, you know, I think that every married couple believes that they are somehow insulated from that. They want to believe that. And I've had the privilege of um, officiating at several weddings. I did one here yesterday. And I can assure you that I've never met a bride or a groom yet on their wedding day that was thinking about having a sexual relationship with anyone other than one another. And I've been able to stand, and when you stand where I stand, and they stand right in front of you, you almost feel like, you know, you're, you're eavesdropping, you know? And I start to blush sometimes. I mean, because what you see and what you hear is incredible. And, and only unless you're, you're wired for video do people get to listen to it later on their video. And uh, it's like, man, there's just like, they're just all over each other. You know, there's just a love there, there's a radiance, there's a joy, there's an excitement, they're slobbering all over each other, they can't say enough good things, man, I mean, they're kissing each other, and when it's time that you may kiss your bride, man, I mean, I've seen faces disappear. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and when you see all of that going on, it's like, you wonder, well, how do you explain this? Paul Lewis writes in a newsletter that's entitled Dads Only. He writes this, and it's rather a sobering statement, and it's hard for me to figure out in light of what I see on wedding days, but he writes this, though most people begin a marriage convinced that an extramarital affair is completely out of the question, the disturbing statistics suggest that over half the married population of this country will sooner or later have an affair. That's 50%. That's half of every marriage. And the disturbing statistic is that it isn't any different in the Christian community. The statistics are about the same. And that's a disturbing trend, and I think we spoke on that when we did this series on biblical morality in America, but the reality of what is being said is that our beliefs or what we say we believe doesn't influence very much our actions. And that's a concern of mine, and I hope it's a concern of yours as well, because what we say we believe, we demonstrate what we believe by the way that we act. And there's a, and there's a problem there somewhere. And we need to recognize that. Now, if you've ever find yourself in the midst of uh, a situation like that, whether directly or indirectly, with a friend or family member, co-worker, or even someone at church, then you know firsthand what a difficult and confusing set of circumstances surround such an event. And the question that I have that we'll deal with is, you know, what changes convictions? You know, I was thinking yesterday as I was standing there because I knew I was going to do this, but I also was doing this wedding and I was kind of confused and I was wondering, you know, here's two people standing here and they're making a commitment to one another, they make a commitment before God, they make a commitment before, you know, their friends and family and the people that are there. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm standing there thinking, you know what, what changes the convictions of the people that make such promises? And it really hit home to me. Because I'm standing there thinking, and, and, and they didn't know what I was thinking, and they didn't know that I was doing this, but I was wondering, you know what, I, I've been to many weddings, and somewhere downstream, something changes convictions. What happens to this inseparable love? What happens to this couple that, you know, if you've ever been around a couple that's so madly in love with each other, it's like they don't even recognize that anybody else is even present in the room. It's like the whole rest of the world is just totally blocked out, and it's just the two of them totally into one another, involved with each other, and, and they could care less about anything else that's going on. 
What happens to that type of, of, uh, of dynamics that's involved in a relationship? What changes convictions? You know, some of us wonder, how does that happen? And some of us have been in the middle of it and wondered, what happened? And so, by no means am I here to in any way say that extramarital affairs are an easy problem to dissect. But I think that if we go through and we look at it and we see the studies and we see what's going on and we listen to what God has to say, we'll see that there are some common threads that are interwoven in every one of those situations. There's some things, there's some, some principles that were violated in the process. And we need to recognize what those are. And, and because I believe that an affair is a possibility in every marriage, I think that we need to somehow or another learn how to, um, what I would call, affair-proof our marriages. And that's what we're going to look at today and, and the next time we get together, and that is some six, maybe six practical, simple principles that if we apply them, we can not only protect or insulate our marriages from the possibility of an extramarital affair, but we can also eliminate even the threat of considering wanting to be with anyone other than your spouse. And uh, if you're here and you're single, then obviously this is very applicable because you'll find yourself one day, if you do get married, that you need to understand this as well. And I don't care. This is applicable to every one of us. Ways that we can somehow or another uh, insulate ourselves from the possibility or at least the threat of it. But before we do that, I want to ask a question. And it's a rather simple one because having had many friends and people that I'm real close to find themselves in the midst of a situation like this, You've got to ask yourself a question, and that is, what causes people to have affairs? I mean, what happens that you end up in that type of situation, in that type of predicament? And we've all sat down, and we've all known someone that's been involved in that, and you sit with them, and you cry with them, and, you, and you're broken with them, and they're asking the question, how in the world did this happen? How did we get to this point? Now, some of us think we know, but we don't know. And uh, some of us are sitting here thinking that, you know what, well... It could never happen to me. There's no way it could happen. I have no tolerance, nor patience, no, nor understanding for anyone that would do something like that to their spouse. I, it's just beyond me how anybody could be like that. So we think we know, but we don't know. One of my favorite stories to illustrate that is the story of a little boy who had a problem in sucking his thumb. And his mom and dad did everything that they could from, you know what, you know, he's about six, seven years old, and he kept sucking his thumb. He had a bad habit, so they tried to break him in the habit. And if he caught him sucking his thumb, he had to go do a timeout and sit in his room. And if he caught him sucking his thumb, then they found some medicine that they dipped on his thumb so it would burn when he'd suck it. And nothing seemed to work. And sometimes moms, you get a little frustrated, and this mom got frustrated with her little boy. And finally, one day, she saw this rather large woman while they were out at the mall, and her son was sucking his thumb again and said to him, you see that? That's what happens. That's going to happen to you if you keep sucking your thumb. And the little boy looked over and saw this rather large woman and thought about it, and about a week went by, and this kid didn't suck his thumb. And so they're in a grocery store together, and the mom and the little boy, and the mom went in another aisle, and the, and the little boy was standing there, and around the corner comes this woman who was at least eight, if not nine months pregnant, and just about ready to launch. And the little boy was just standing there staring at this woman. And staring and staring, and finally it started to annoy this lady. She looked down and says, uh, little boy, you know, it's not nice to stare at people. And in fact, you don't even know me. And he looked at her and he thought for a second and said, yeah, I may not know you, but I know what you've been doing. <laughs> so anyway, some of us think we know, but we don't know. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26. 
And I want to make a couple things clear as we start out on this study because there are some of us who are absolutely convinced. And the problem with that is, as we deal with situations like this, depending on what your attitude is toward other people who make mistakes, it's the way you're going to deal with it. In Matthew chapter 26, look at verse 41 for a second. Jesus had asked his disciples to pray with him while he was praying, to stay up with him, to wait up, to pray that the time was coming when he would be arrested. And every time that he went back, they were sound asleep. You know, and here's Peter, the great disciple, saying, Lord, you know what, I, I'll never desert you, I'll never leave you, I'm here, and I'm, I'm here for you, man, I'm, I'm going to stick to it. You know, you're talking about someone coming, you're going to die and all these things, well, I'll die with you, oh man, oh man, oh man. And so Jesus, as he's praying, went back to see Peter, the guy who said he'd never leave him, never desert him, he'd be there for him, he'd always fight with him, blah, blah, blah. And he goes back, and Peter's sound asleep, man, he's just sawing logs. And he goes back, he wakes him up, hey, you know, can you just wait, can you wake up, can you, can you pray, can you just stay up with me, the time is near, they're going to come and arrest me, the hour is approaching, and, and oh yeah, okay, okay. So Jesus goes and he prays again, and he comes back and he's sawing logs again, these guys are sound asleep. And so Jesus, understanding what's going on here, says to them, he says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's saying, man, you know, your spirit is willing, Peter. You guys want to be there? You want to fight the good fight? You want to be there when they come to get me? You're never going to leave me, desert me? Man, you know, you're saying all the right stuff. You want to do the right things? Oh, yeah, your spirit is willing. But your flesh is weak. And what he's saying to us is, hey, you know what, Chuck, keep watching and waiting because, you know what, your spirit is willing. Oh, yeah, Lord, you want to do the, I want to do the right thing. You want to do the right thing. Anybody that calls themselves a child of God and has put their faith and trust in Christ and wants to live a life that's pleasing to God says, oh, Lord, I want to do what's right. Yeah, and I commend you for that. That's great. But let me tell you something about yourself that you don't know and you don't understand. While your spirit is willing and you want to do what's right, I want to save my marriage. I want to do the right thing. I want to love my husband like I'm supposed to. I want to love my wife like I'm supposed to. I want to love my children like I'm supposed to. I want to do the things that I'm supposed to do. And I'm all willing to do it. I'm gung-ho to do it. He said, yeah, but you know what the problem is? Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is so weak. And James, it says, but each one of us, when we're enticed by our own lust, we fall into sin. Those are little things that turn us on. Maybe they don't turn somebody else on. Those little things, that, that, a little chink in our armor, so to speak, that you struggle with that I might not, that I might struggle with something and you don't. And all our spirit is willing and we all want to do the right stuff. But he says, yeah, your flesh is so weak. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as a good illustration of that. And it's important because I'm trying to lay a foundation here for all of us to understand what a problem this is in the area of extramarital affairs. We want to do what's right, but we're struggling with something. In 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 12. He says, therefore, and, and, and he's explaining what he had just talked about. The, the previous chapter deals with the fact that God had led the people of Israel, his people, out of Egypt. Miraculous things that he did to get them out of Egypt. And they were there and they were delivered. And, and in essence, they owed him their lives. And so they were waiting in the desert and God called Moses up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And while Moses was away, all the people were waiting for him to come back and it was a little longer than they thought it would be. So they decided to throw a party to kill some time. And at this particular party, it got out of control. There was a lot of booze. There was a lot of women running around. There were a lot of guys. They were looking at these women. They were getting all excited. And next thing you know, they had a big old orgy and that's what was going on. In fact, that's what it says in verse 7. And don't be idolaters as some of these people were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. And it was a sign of just a total chaotic disaster. 
It was kind of like some of the Super Bowl parties that I heard about last week. But it was just out of control. It was a disaster. And what happened was God said, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he too shall fall. There were a lot of people that were at that party that thought to themselves, How in the world did we get in the middle of all this? What happened? What happened? They woke up the next day and they had their hangovers and they had their memories and they're thinking, What in the world did I do? How did this happen in my life? And he goes on and says this, But no temptation has overtaken you, but it is common to man. Every one of us struggle with things, and so what I'm hoping to get across is this. While somebody may fall in the area of sexual immorality, they may fall in this area where they've gotten involved with someone other than, other than their spouse, spouse, we need to recognize that, you know what, there's no temptation that's overtaken you that isn't common to every one of us. It's a struggle for all of us. And all of us want to do the right thing, but sometimes we frankly just don't do it. We don't understand it, but God is saying, listen to me, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. There's no temptation that overtakes you that's not common to all of man. But God is faithful, who won't allow us to be tempted beyond that which we're able, but with that temptation will always provide a way of escape so that we're able to endure it. And so what this session is designed to do is understand the ways of escape so that we can endure the temptations that we'll face on a daily basis. What he's saying to all of us is, if you've got an attitude that you believe that somehow you are insulated and immune from ever having to deal with an extramarital affair, let me tell you something from the Word of God. Watch out, because that prideful arrogance is what's going to lead into your problems. He's saying, wake up and understand something here. Every person that's married here today and listening to this and every person that's single and will ever be married at any time in their life needs to understand and recognize that you and I are susceptible to fall in this area of our life. Wake up. And if you understand that, you'll take what's going to be said serious and you'll act upon it and you'll do something about it. And we need to recognize that. The Apostle Peter wrote this in unmistakable terms in 2 Peter 2, 14 and 15. He writes this, With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. They are an accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. I like how God puts it in its real simple terms. He says this, you know what? Someone's just going to leave the straight way. You know how we, you know, we joke about being on the straight and narrow and going in the right direction and all these things. Some of us are going to leave the straight way. We're going to stop doing the right thing. We're going to stop going in the right direction. We're going to get to the point where, you know, frankly, we're just tired of doing the right thing. And we need to recognize that that's a possibility. That there's a right way to live, there's a wrong way to live. And in marriage, the right way to live is, is that you commit yourselves to one another and you don't consider being with anybody else. But frankly, sometimes people get tired of doing what's right and they consider doing the wrong thing. And, and, and we need to understand that, that that's a possibility for every one of us. You get tired of doing what's expected of us, so we stop and think that we can do something else to kind of break up the monotony. And uh, James Dobson, who's a noted uh, author, best-selling author and psychologist, he writes this, and I like the way that he puts it because I think all of us will understand it a little better than what I'm trying to explain, and that's this. He says, you know, the straight life for a homemaker is washing dishes three hours a day. It's cleaning sinks, scouring toilets, waxing floors. It's chasing to toddlers and, med and mediating fights between preschool siblings. One mother that I spoke to said she raised three tricycle motors, and they had worn her out. He says, the straight life is driving your beat-up van to school in the ball field and back 23 times a week. It's grocery shopping, baking, 
cupcakes for the class Halloween party. You know, it's watching your husband drag himself to his easy chair, grab his channel changer, surf the networks, which is the only exercise that he gets, and totally ignore you and his needs while all the time hiding in the newspaper. I made that part up. I'm going back to what Dobson said now. <laughs> Man, well, that was pretty accurate though, wasn't it? Okay. He says, and certainly the uh, straight life for the homemaker can be an exhausting experience. He says, the straight life for the working man is not much simpler. It's pulling your tired frame out of bed five days a week, 50 weeks out of the year. It's earning a two-week vacation, choosing a trip that'll please the kids. The straight life spending your money wisely when you'd rather indulge in a new whatever. It's taking your son bike riding on Saturday when you want so badly to watch the baseball game. It's cleaning out the garage on your day off after working 60 hours the prior week. Straight life's coming, coping with head colds and engine tune-ups and crabgrass and income tax forms. It's taking your family to church on Sunday instead of playing golf, even though you've heard every idea the minister has to offer. It's giving a portion of your income to God's work when you already wonder how ends are going to meet. The straight life for the ordinary garden variety husband and father is everything I've listed and much, much more. So what does the guy do? He goes out, he buys himself some new clothes, he unbuttons his shirt down to his belly button, <laughs> buys himself a gold chain and a medallion that hangs there, goes to the BMW showroom, picks himself up a nice little sports car that he can drive around his nice little secretary that he met at work. Or he goes down to the club and looks for someone down there with a little harder body than the wife has, and the next thing you know, they drive off in the sunset together, and you wonder, how in the world does all this happen? Well, you know, it's easy to see how it all can happen. If you get your head out of the sand and look around a little bit, you know, because we're all hearing voices that are trying to drag us away from doing what's right. We're all hearing voices that are trying to drag us away from living a right life before God. So we're all getting, you know, it's kind of those voices that whisper to you at first, and then they start to shout to you. One of those voices is pleasure. Every one of us has heard this voice. And that's the voice that says, you know what? When are you going to do something for yourself? You deserve better. Life's too short. Who's taking care of you? What about your needs? You know, you're so busy taking care of everybody else. Isn't it time that you had a little fun? And besides that, who's going to know anyway? You know, look where you're at. You're out of town. Nobody knows you. What's the difference? You know, it's no big deal. And those are the kind of voices that you hear. I like what one man said who left his wife for a secretary. said this said, I'm the father of four kids. I've been a full-time husband and father for 10 years, and I've been putting up with constant noise and bickering and financial pressures at home. I've rarely had any time to myself, and my life has been one long obligation. Then Martha came onto the scene. Martha. Makes you wonder, huh? That's how bad this has got. No, I can see now, you know, Bambi came along the scene, you know. But it's like, Martha came along. Anyway, go back to what he said. He said, so she came onto the scene, and I went with her, because frankly, she looked good, and uh, fun and games looked good to me. Well, it was obvious what he was saying, you know, he got pulled off of doing what was right. Now, that's what a man is susceptible to. Most of the time, women are susceptible to what I would call the voice of romance. The voice of romance, that's the one where women are led astray by the man that comes into their life and says, you know, baby, if you were my wife, you would never have to fill in the blank. You'd never have to do laundry, baby. You'd never have to clean your own house, baby. I'm ignoring them today. I'm going to try a whole new approach. You'd never have to, uh, what? You'd never have to work if you were my wife. See, if you were my wife, you know, we'd get someone to take care of the children, and we'd go travel, and we'd go do things, and we'd blah, 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 blah. 
And see, what happens is a woman starts to buy into that because she's looking for that knight in shining armor to deliver her from this disastrous situation that she finds herself in. She's looking for the guy to come in and ride in his horse and pick her up out of the midst of all the dirty diapers and all the kids and all the snots and the boogers and stuff all over the place. She's looking for somebody to say, Save me from the boogers! Please, someone. And that's what happens, you know, and a guy makes all these promises and that's how she ended up marrying you, buddy. Isn't that right? Because when you're dating, it's like, oh, you never have to do this and you never have to do that. You never have to, oh, baby, baby, baby. And that's what she's looking for, and that's what she's attracted to. The third voice is the one that's just a voice that's a desire for, for sex. And I think men are more vulnerable to this, obviously. And that's the voice that's directed mostly toward men, but certainly some women have fallen to it. But that's the voice that says in simple terms, hey, you know what? I just want a wild night of passionate sex. No commitment, no romance, no nothing. Just I want to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and then I can move on with my life. And I'll compartmentalize it over here, and it won't affect me over here. And that's just the way that it is, and that's the voice. No commitments, no relationships. That's just the way it is. You remember our brain diagram last week? That's because, guys, you know, 70% of our brain, that's all we're thinking about. 70% of a woman's brain is thinking about commitment and relationships. That's why she's going to be lured away by romance. 70% of a man's brain is thinking about just physical sex. And that's why he'll be lured away by someone that looks good and attractive and, and, and turns him on. And, and, you know, and, and that's the direction that'll go. It's just these little voices that we hear. It doesn't really mean anything to me. And that's why women have such a hard time when, when they find themselves in the midst of a situation like this when their husband says to them, but you know what? <laughs> it, she didn't mean anything to me. Don't you understand? She did not mean a thing to me. No, I did not love her. No, I do not want a relationship with her. No, I don't want anything. I love you, but I just wanted to have sex with someone else. And a, and a wife would go, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why? Because I would never have sex with anyone other than somebody I want to have a relationship with. See, it goes back to what we're struggling with, and that is that men and women think differently. We need to recognize it so we can combat the, the uh, possibility of falling into a situation like this. And so we compartmentalize these things and we need to recognize that. And the fourth thing which appeals to, I think, every one of us, this fourth voice is that of the voice that appeals to our self-image. That loud and shouting voice that says, you know what, I want someone to still think I'm attractive. I want someone to still find me exciting to be with. I want someone that just plans their whole day around just being with me and nobody else because they can't think of anything else that they'd rather do than spend time with me. I want someone that, that will just listen to me talk. I want someone that will laugh at my jokes. I want someone that just will, you know, just to build me up and make me feel better about myself. It's easy to see how these things can happen, isn't it? Who hasn't got bored in their marriage? Who hasn't got frustrated by a husband that doesn't care or a wife that doesn't meet his needs? Who, who hasn't heard voices to say, hey, you know what, are you still everything that you used to be and are you still that now to somebody else? Who hasn't wanted someone to come and rescue them from the terrible marriage that they find themselves in? See, the point that I'm trying to make, and I, would, I hope that you would understand, is that God understands that. And he says to us, listen to me, your spirit is willing, you want to do what's right, but you know what, your flesh is weak, and unless you're watching and praying and you're alert to these dangers, you're going to wake up one day and say, how'd this happen to us? And I don't want to dwell on that necessarily as much as what I want to do is take a look at six positive steps that I believe if we apply them in our marriages today, that they will do everything but almost eliminate the possibility that you'd even consider being with anybody other than your husband or wife. 
But we've got some work that we need to do, and that's why I wanted to, to preface what I'm saying to this. If you really believe, if, if you, what you say you really believe, you're going to do something about it. Too many of us say, well, I want to do what I can to make my marriage better. And you know what? And you know and I know and what's frustrating to everybody is that you leave here and you don't do a darn thing about it. That is so frustrating to your spouse. It is so frustrating to anyone who cares about you and loves you. How many times have you sat with a friend whose marriage is in trouble? We had friends come over yesterday, and they're, they're having a difficult time in their marriage, and you can tell this guy the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. She can tell him. I can tell him. His friends can tell him. And you know, he's so stupid and boneheaded and stubborn that he doesn't do anything about it. Man. Now, if you say you want to have a better marriage, and if you say you want to do everything you can to affair-proof your marriage, then I would have to believe that you mean it, that you really want to do something. So I want to give you some positive steps to take. Six positive steps. We're going to take a look at a couple of them. That's all we're going to be able to handle because you'd be like, ah, if I could apply this stuff, just give it to me real easy, buddy. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. Number one, first thing that you have to do if you want to insulate your marriage from the possibility of an affair is to minister to your mate's sexual needs. Minister to your mate's sexual needs. How can you keep your spouse from even thinking about being with anyone what you, but you? You have to take care of their sexual needs. Now, this sounds so simple, and it sounds like a no-brainer. But you know, it's amazing to me at how many people that I've talked to, how many people that I know, and how many times you can read about it, that especially men that enter into a relationship with another woman simply because they're trying to get their sexual needs met. That's it. And, and you think, well, that's simple and that's easy and, and gee, that should be easy to take care of. But you know what? It's not really that simple. Remember, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. We, we went in depth with this last time, but just as a reminder, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, we read this. But because of immoralities, and adultery certainly is an immorality, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, the husband does, and likewise the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So stop depriving one another, except by a mutual agreement for a time you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, what? Lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The Bible is so clear, and God is so clear on this. He's saying, listen, if you want to insulate your marriage from an extra possibility of extramarital affair, take care of business at home. It doesn't get any simpler than that. But the problem is the whole desire thing. You know, we need to recognize that we need to meet one another's sexual needs. You know, and it's a dangerous thing if a man isn't meeting his wife's needs and a woman's not meeting her husband's needs. But what I have found in experience is that it typically is the wife who's not meeting her husband's physical needs. And I'll explain to you why that is in a minute. But Barbara Rainey writes in one of her books, uh, Straight Talk to Wives. And I like what she has to say. This is from a woman's perspective, so listen very carefully. She says, I'm realizing more and more with each year of marriage how crucial sex is to my husband's self-image. It's not merely a means of recreation or satisfying some sort of appetite, but it builds his confidence as a man. It makes him feel accepted. Fulfilling his sexual needs and desires not only builds a wonderful intimacy between a husband and wife, but it protects him from even wandering about other women. Why would he want to? 
you're all that he needs and wants. Without the physical affirmation of love, a man is left insecure and susceptible to another woman who may think he's just Mr. Wonderful. Wow. See, it's important to realize that unfaithfulness comes in different packages. That's why in the case of an affair, rarely is one of the partners completely innocent or completely to blame. When we neglect to meet our mate's sexual needs because we're too busy with our careers or we're too busy with our educational pursuits or we're too busy taking care of the children or we're too busy enjoying our hobbies, we're guilty of being unfaithful to the promises and the responsibility that we have to our mate. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5 is not a command. I mean, it's not a suggestion, but it's a command. Now, listen to what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that it justifies having sex with anyone other than your spouse because two wrongful acts, in one case, you've got a neglectful spouse who's not taking care of the needs of the other, so that person goes out and finds a way to take care of those needs on his or her own. See, so in one hand, you've got neglect, and on the other hand, you've got infidelity, and you've got two wrongs, and those two wrongs added up will never make a right. In fact, all they're going to do is make a bigger mess. But I think it's important that we recognize and understand something here. I've never met any couple yet that I know where one of them is completely innocent and the other is completely guilty. There's an interrelationship that takes place here that we need to understand what those dynamics are so we can own up to our sense of responsibility to be able to do what's right. The point is clear. The reason I chose minister to your mate's sexual needs is very simple. Minister is, is, is defined as an agent or instrument to supply that which is needed. It means to serve another. So we're instruments, and understand this, as a husband and wife, we are instruments to be used by God to meet the sexual needs of our husband or our wife. Two instruments used by God to meet one another's physical needs. You know, and it takes two instruments, the last time I saw, rubbed together to get any sparks to fly. So it takes two people and we need two people who will assume that responsibility. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but you know what? And this is the way this works. I can't stand the thought of having sex with my husband. I can't stand the thought of having sex with my wife. I can't stand even thinking about it because right at this point, I don't like him. I don't like her. She got, she's getting on my nerves. All she does is moan and complain and bicker and everything else. I can't stand the thought of being with him. All he does is sit in that chair with the channel changer. He's gained another 40 pounds. He smells bad. He ignores me all day long. And then he wants to jump in the sack. And when he jumps in, I get bounced out anyway. Now... I realize that this is very serious and this is very difficult to deal with and that uh, we need to recognize that. But all that I want you to understand at this particular point is what comes first? The commitment to meet the other person's need or the desire and then you make a commitment to meet that need. You see what the problem is? See, too many of us say, okay, Lord, I want to do what's right, but hey, until I have a desire to do it, I'm not going to do it. And in fact, there's no sense in doing it because all it will be is a duty anyway. I'd just be doing it because I have to do it and I don't want to do it and it's going to show up and it's going to become evident and it's going to cause more problems, so I'm not going to do it. 
what I just, can I suggest this? Number one, make the commitment to do what God says to do. Make a commitment, I'm going to meet his or her physical need because that's my responsibility. Now, God, please give me the desire. And God can do that. But here's what usually happens. A noted psychologist said, this is a, it was asked this question, said, what is the most common marital problem you hear about in your office? He says, let's suppose I have a counseling appointment at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon with a person whom I've never met. Who's that person and what will be the complaint that brings them to me? First, the patient will probably be Mrs. Jones, not her husband. Man is seldom the first to seek marital counseling, and when he does, it's for a different motive than when his wife seeks it. She comes because her marriage is driving her crazy. He comes to counseling because his wife is driving him crazy. Mrs. Jones will be perhaps 28 to 42 years of age. Her problem will be extremely familiar to me, though the details will vary. The frustration she communicates on that afternoon will conform to a well-worn pattern, and it will sound like this. John and I were deeply in love when we got married. We struggled during the first two or three years, especially with financial problems. But I knew that he loved me, and, I, and he knew I loved him. But then something began to change. I'm not sure how to describe it. He received a promotion about five years ago, and that required him to work longer hours. We needed the money, so it didn't, we didn't mind the extra time that he was putting in. But it never stopped. Now he comes home late every evening. He's so tired I can actually hear his feet dragging as he approaches the front door. I look forward to his coming home all day because I have so much to tell him, but he doesn't feel much like talking. So I fix dinner and he eats alone because I've already eaten earlier with the children. After dinner, John makes a few phone calls, works at his desk, and frankly, I like to hear, I like to hear him talk on the telephone just so I can hear his voice. Then he watches television for a couple of hours, he goes to bed. Except on Tuesday night he plays basketball and sometimes he has a meeting at the office and every Saturday morning he plays golf with three of his friends. Then on Sunday we're in church most of the day. Believe me, there are times we go for a month or two without having a real in-depth conversation. I get so lonely in the house with three kids climbing all over me. There aren't even any other women in the neighborhood I can talk to because most of them have gone back to work. But there are other irritations about John. He rarely takes me out to dinner and he forgot our anniversary last month. I honestly don't believe he's ever had a romantic thought. He wouldn't know a rose from a carnation, and his Christmas cards are signed, Just John. There's no closeness or warmth between us, yet he wants to have sex with me at the end of the day. There we are, lying in bed, having had no communication between us in weeks. He hasn't tried to be sweet or understanding or tender, yet he expects me to become passionate and responsive to him. I'll tell you this, I can't do it. Sure, I go along with my duties as a wife, but I sure don't get anything out of it. And after that two-minute journey is over, and he is sound asleep, I lay there thinking to myself, what in the world am I doing? I feel like a cheap prostitute. Can you believe that? I feel used for having sex with my own husband, and that depresses me. I've been awfully depressed lately. My self-esteem is rock bottom right now. I feel like nobody loves me. I'm a lousy mother, a terrible wife. Sometimes I think even God probably doesn't love me anymore either. Well, now I'd better tell you what's really been going on between us recently. We've been arguing a lot, I mean really fighting. It's the only way I can get his attention, I guess. We had an incredible battle last week in front of the kids. It was awful. There were tears and screaming insults, everything. I spent two nights at my mother's house. Now all I can think about is getting a divorce so I can escape John. He doesn't love me anyway. What difference would it really make? I guess that's why I've come to see you. I want to know doing the right thing by quitting my marriage. He goes on to say, Mrs. Jones speaks as though she were the only woman in the world who's ever experienced this pattern of needs, but she is no different from many others that I've talked to, and she's certainly not alone. It's my guess that 90% of the divorces that occur each year involve at least some of these elements she described. 
an extremely busy husband who is in love with his work and who tends to be somewhat insensitive, unromantic, and non-communicative, married to a lonely, vulnerable, romantic woman who has severe doubts about her worth as a human being. They become a matched team. He works like a horse and she nags. Which leads me to number two. Number two is this. We need to be committed to meeting our mate's emotional needs. You can't compartmentalize a vital sex life in marriage. We have to meet our physical needs, but you know what? It's a lot easier if you're meeting the emotional needs to get involved in wanting to meet one another's physical needs. We need to recognize that. Men, let me just talk to you for a second. One of the ironies, the greatest ironies of life that I know is that we can get our wives interested in sex by never discussing it with them. You follow that? You can get your wife interested in sex by never discussing sex with her. Think about it for a moment. Sex isn't about just the physical. It goes much deeper than that, much further than that. That's why we're talking about the primary sexual organ and every human being is a brain. It all starts in the mind. When you're dating and you're doing all the things that you used to do, when you're picking her up and you're taking her out and you're being romantic and you're buying her flowers and you're sending her cards and you're calling her in the day and you're doing all those things, man, I mean, all that stuff. Now I'm not saying you did all those things to seduce her, but it all was heading in that direction and you never discussed it once with her. And the guy in the world got a chance to have sex with a woman by picking her up and saying, hey, what do you think? You want to have sex with me tonight? What? What are you, nuts? That's crazy. It's ridiculous. And it's not about the physical. I mean, you know, listen to me for a minute. Would somebody else explain to me Prince Charles and this camellia lady? Huh? Love is blinder than blind. You know, I, I just look at the picture and just go, what? What was he thinking? Although some of you women are probably thinking he's no gem either, you know? Right? I mean, you're looking at both of them together just going... What, what, what is going on here? God's saying, that's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not a physical thing, man. There's more to it than that. There, there, there's things that we need to recognize and understand. So let me give you uh, quickly some homework to work on, okay? If you want to meet your, your spouse's physical need and emotional needs by meeting the emotional need first, okay? Jot these down. I don't have any overhead, so you're going to have to pay attention. Number one, avoid prolonged absences. You know, we live in a day and age where many women and many men have to travel for their businesses. And you go out of town a lot. Well, let me just tell you something. That absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart grow apathetic. Out of sight, out of mind. If you're gone a lot from your spouse, then you've got some major work that you're going to need to do if you want to insulate your marriage from the possibility of an extramarital affair. If you're not home taking care of business, then somebody else may step up to the plate and do just that. What you need to do, if you have to travel, make sure that you block out time that you're not gone for extended periods of time. I don't care what business you're in, I don't care who you work for, but you're going to have to ask yourself some tough questions. Is my business more important than my marriage? Because you're going to need to schedule your time away from home so it's not destructive to your relationship with one another. Three to four days max at a period of time. Schedule it so that you'll be home on weekends. Schedule it so that you make sure that when you are home that you're doing things with one another. I'll give you an example. My brother-in-law is a pilot. They never travel for more than three to four days at a time. They travel for three or four and they're off for three or four. So they have extended periods of time to be home. 
And the important thing that I've learned from their relationship is, you know, he can go for three or four days, but when he's home those other three or four days, man, you better be taking care of business with your wife and your children. And this guy does what he needs to do. He takes care of it. He, do, he goes where they, they need to go. He takes care of his kids. He helps her around the house. He gives her some free time because he's been gone. She may need to go out to shop or do something. I mean, he takes care of business. Now, he's not home extended periods of time, but I'll guarantee you this. He spends more time with his wife and his children than most of us do that work 9 to 5 and are home every night and on the weekends. So don't fall into a pattern of thinking, well, I'm here. Well, you're there, but you're useless, man. I mean, I'm listening to this story about how John, I mean, think about this. John's so tired, he comes home, and here's the thing that stood out in my mind. Then he watches television for a couple of hours. Well, there's two hours he could be doing something else like meeting his, his wife's emotional needs. There's two hours that they can be spending together after the children are in bed to co communicate and to talk about things that are going on, to spend time together, to be involved with one another, to, to recreate that intimacy that they need. I mean, there's some stuff that can be done there, man, if you're committed about making sure that nothing happens to your marriage. So we need to recognize that. Shorter blocks of time away from home. When you're home on the weekends or in the evening, spend that time with your family. If you have to, shut off the TV. If you have to, go out somewhere together where you're not going to be interrupted by anybody. Man, we need to take this serious because we're running into all kinds of problems. You know, if you travel a lot, take your spouse with you. Make it a little mini vacation so you've got to work at, during the day, but she can go and shop or he can go and do something, and at night you can get together and do things. That's a wonderful thing about frequent flyer traveling and all this kind of stuff. You can earn a ticket. It doesn't even cost you anything. Bring her or bring him with you. If you travel, whatever you do, stay out of the bars. Stay out of the lounge in the hotel. Stay out of places that are going to ruin your marriage and cause difficulties for you. I mean, there's a lot of simple things you can do to make sure that you avoid the problems that you run into. And lock, you know what? I've had guys, we never had to travel that much in business, but, you know, being away with the Rams and stuff like that would be gone for maybe two nights or one night or whatever, and you're gone. Hey, you know what? There's some little things you need to do. Hey, tell the hotel people that you don't want any of the, uh, the adult television programs or adult movies boxed into your room. You know, you can get a child block on there. I don't care if you're an adult or not. Go to your room and say, you either take the TV out of my room, if you can't avoid turning it on like that, or I want those channels blocked out for children's viewing. And the guy will look and say, but you don't have any kids. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we need to recognize that. I mean, there are some simple, practical things that we need to do. And let me tell you, when you get back together, after being away from one another, get back together. You got it? You know what that means? All right, good. Got a mixed audience here. I'm trying to be polite. Get back together. Number two. Number two. Think about this. Get physical without being sensual. Get physical without being sensual. You know what that means? Touch each other without knocking each other down. Hug one another. Hold each other's hands. Give each other a little kiss during the day. I mean, be physical with one another without being sensual. I'll give you an example. We were away last week. We were walking along the beach. And we had, re we had dinner at a restaurant. It was kind of like on the beach. And we had to walk along the beach to go back to the hotel. And it was dark and couldn't really see. Oh, but the stars were out. The moon was out. Oh, it was awesome. So we're walking along the beach. You know, we're just holding hands, and we're just holding each other, and we're just walking along the beach. You just stop, you look, and you just, nice little kiss, and you keep walking. Now, he who began a good work in me is continuing to be at work, because there was a day I would have knocked her right down in the sand. You know what I mean? <laughs> and would be like, hey. And, 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 
and, and she knows it because it was kind of like what happens is that most guys fall in this trap of if your wife reaches for your hand, you're thinking, yes! <laughs> you know, she, she rolls over in bed and she puts her arm around you. You know, you're thinking, all right! <laughs> and then all she's thinking is, I, I just want to hold you. <laughs> for how long? And so what happens? She starts. She stops wanting to hold you. She doesn't want to hold your hand anymore because she's not thinking about anything. But I just want to hold your hand. And you think about if you hold my hand, that's a green light. We're going down. But that's not what she's trying to say. See, in meeting her need is very simple. She just wants to be held, and she wants. Am, am I right, ladies? I mean, is that right? Oh yeah. Don't get ugly on me now and go crazy. But, but you know, we need to understand something. Probably the funniest story that I ever heard was the story of a little girl who was laying in bed at night and there was a thunderstorm and there was loud thunderclaps and man, she was getting scared. She went in and she ran into her mom and dad's room and she jumped up in bed and you know the dad reached out and held her and said, honey, don't worry, the Lord will protect you. And she said, oh, honey, oh, daddy, I know that, but right now I need someone with some skin on. <laughs> you know? It's like, sometimes that's all you want. You just want someone with some skin on, you know? It's like... Guys, I, I don't know how to tell you, but man, you know, spend the day just holding each other and hugging each other, and, and, and guys, we're terrible at it. See, what this lady was saying, why she was so frustrated, oh, yeah, okay, now we jump in bed and we want to have sex, but we haven't done anything tender. We haven't held her hand. We haven't said any nice words to her. We haven't called her to see how she's doing. We haven't brought her some flowers or, or, or dropped her a little card or, or, or wrote her a note, and we haven't done any of these things, and all of a sudden we want to get in the bed, and you can't expect your wife to have any desire for you physically because you haven't done anything to meet her emotional needs. And I'm not saying, I'm, I'm, you know, I got this thing down, man, because I'm taking notes as I'm going too. And I'm starting to realize, you know, these are the things that we need to do if we want to attract one another and insulate ourselves from the potential of somebody else doing that. Number three, not only should we get physical without being sensual, but we need to also start the day lovingly. Here's a practical way you can escape temptation. I'm telling you right now, I don't know how many of you have a problem doing this, but I'm going to just challenge you to do it. Start your day off by being nice to each other. You know what I'm saying? Start your day off when you wake up in the morning, you look over and see, and, and this was, I was laughing, I was writing some things down this week and, and God put this funny thought in my mind. I was kind of like, Chuck, when you wake up in the morning and you look over at your wife, just kind of go, yes, she spent the night with you. Now, I don't know if that means anything to anybody but me, but it's like, what a wonderful feeling that is to know that somebody would actually risk the rest of their life spending every night sleeping and staying in the same bed with you. That's a great blessing. I mean, to be able to wake up, and, and first of all, waking up's not a bad way to start the day. <laughs> right? I mean, that's not bad. Hey, I'm up. That's a good start. And my wife woke up. That's a second good start. No, we're both up. Now, what are we going to do with it once we get up? Some of us hate the mornings. Well, you know what? I mean, it wouldn't hurt if you just take a couple minutes to say something nice to each other, to get, go brush your teeth and give each other a big old kiss. Uh, you know, do it in the right order. Otherwise, you may never want to do it again. Um, but, you know, just do something like that. And then after, you, you know, you say this thing, then you can go out and attack the kids. You know, and say something nice to them, too. Start their day off, you know, so that they actually want to come home at the end of the day. Unless, of course, you don't want them to, and then you can, you know, say whatever you want. But start the day off in a, in a loving way, man. I'm telling you what, that's the greatest way to go. Now, here's one more little clue for you. When you leave, 
to go about your business for the day, you give each other the biggest kiss that you've given one another since the day that you got married. Man, you give each other a kiss that your faces disappear. You give your, each other a kiss so that your kids are watching just going like this. Ooh. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, man, let me tell you something. If you're going out to go to work that day and the last thing you got on your mind was, man, my wife and my husband gave me the kiss that just about took my breath away and you know what? And the typical guy, hey, is, is that a signal that I should be late for something? No, just go, man. That was a signal that I love you and go ahead out there and attack the world. Man, I'm telling you, when you kiss someone like that, you're saying, you know what? I want you! It's not a bad way to start the day. But you know what? How many of us do simple little things like that? At the end of each day, greet each other positively. Say something nice. Don't walk in the door moaning and groaning about traffic and waiting and this and that and what a terrible day you had and how your boss is the biggest toad that ever lived. And just, you hate your job, you hate your life, you hate everything. Good, it's good to see you. You know, what kind of greeting is that? You know what, if that's the kind of greeting that you're getting, no wonder people stop at the lounge or the sports bar somewhere, man. See what's happening here? We've got to make it so attractive that our husband or our wife comes home and they can't wait to get there. Because once you left them in the morning with a big old face-sucking kiss, and they've been thinking about it all day long, and they've not even recognized the fact that there's any other men or women in their life, man. All they're thinking about is the kiss you gave. You walk in the door, and if you're home first, ma'am, let me just tell you something. Be ready for them. You know, clean yourself up a little bit. No, seriously. You know, he's been around women all day that have their best foot forward. They're on top of their game. They're looking good. They're smelling good. They're attractive, and men are vis visibly stimulated. So when, when he comes home at the end of the day, even if you've been around kids all the time, you know, just take a couple of minutes and clean yourself up a little bit, smell a little better. You know, if you have to, jump in the shower, put on something that looks nice. When he walks in, he's like, whoa, this is awesome. Now, if you're home first, sir, then you know what? Knock her out by, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you actually did something like you had the kids ready for dinner or you actually put dinner on, you had a nice little, or you got a babysitter and you got the kids out of the house and you had a couple little candles on a table with a little bit of, you know, candlelight dinner. You actually made dinner or you had a catered, have somebody bring it in because you didn't want to screw it up by making it yourself. And, uh, and you did all that. And she walked in the door after a day like that and you greeted her at the door and said, baby, I've missed you all day. You lip locker. You bring her in, she walks in, and there's these candles, there's this dinner, there's all this stuff going on. Why in the world would she be interested in sh some schmuck at her office who says, if you were my wife, baby, 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 <laughs> you know, you wouldn't have to do anything. It's like, he, she doesn't even care. Because no one can compete with you. And if you were doing the same thing, ma'am, when he got home and you weren't hammering him the first th three minutes of how, I'm going to kill those kids, I'm going to kill them. Where have you been all day? Get up there, they're in this room and that room and the other room, and there ain't no dinner at all because I've been going nice all day. <laughs> you know, you're walking in the house going, <laughs> holding up a cross. It's like, what in the world? You know, don't you see how we destroy each other's relationships by doing the dumbest little things? I mean, stop and think about it. And the last thing, if you want to meet each other's, you know, each other's emotional needs, and I'll close on this, is be sensitive to those special need occasions. You know what those are? Like, lady, if your husband lost his job, or he lost a deal at work, or he didn't get a promotion, 
or something's going on and it's really difficult for them, can I just suggest to you that you become extra sexually aggressive because your husband needs that? He needs to know that he's okay. He needs to know that everything's going to be all right. He needs to know that, you know what, without the promotion and without the extra money and without all these things, that you still love him for who he is and not for what he can give to you. See, I don't know about you, but let me tell you something about my family. The whole world could be against me. Everything can be going totally wrong in every area of my life. But if I come home and I know that my wife loves me and I know my children love me, then you know what? I can go back out in the world and I can take y'all on. Isn't that the truth? But I'll tell you this. The whole world could be dropping tons of dough in my lap and business could be going great and everything could be going wonderful. But if I go home and I'm not getting along with my wife and I'm not getting along with my children, then the whole world can give me everything that it's got. And you know what? It doesn't make a bit of difference to me. It just doesn't matter. Those extra sensitive moments. Now, if your wife's going through a difficult time, sir, may I suggest to you this, that you be tender with her, that you be sensitive to her, that you buy her some flowers, that you send her a note, that you call her up during the day, that you find the babysitters and you arrange the evening out, that you take her out. You do the things that you used to do when you were dating and you go places that you know that she likes. Her favorite restaurant, her favorite beach, her favorite whatever. And you do those things. And now let me tell you this, buddy. Listen. Don't mess it up by trying to have sex with her. Do you understand that? Don't mess it up. Because she just wants to know that you love her and that you care for her and that you're there to comfort her. And unless she initiates it, don't even think about it or you'll blow it off. That's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because you love her and you care for her. Six positive steps. We've only seen two and we've got a whole bunch of homework to deal with, but you know what? Think about it. If you're going to meet, make a commitment, number one, to meet your mate's sexual need, physical need. And also pray that God will give you a desire to do it because what comes first? The desire, the willingness, and the obedience to do what's right before God. Let me give you an illustration of it. We talked about finances, how we're to commit our finances and honor the Lord first. Well, you know what? What comes first? The desire to give to God or the commitment to do what's right and then God will give you the desires after we make our steps of obedience. I believe the same thing is true here. The commitment to do what's right will be followed by the desire. If we continue to meet each other's emotional needs by avoiding prolonged absences and spending quality time when we're together with one another and also avoiding times where it's going to be extended periods of time where you've got to bring your wife or your husband if you have to, do what you need to do. To get physical, to hug and to kiss and to touch without being sensual. To start the day lovingly by saying the right things to each other, by doing what's right, by spending time alone together before the kids mess up your day and all that kind of stuff and the commotion and the confusion. Greet each other positively at the end of the day. Man you, 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 man, you get to the point where you can't wait to get home at night. That'd be a nice change for some of us, huh? And be sensitive to special occasion needs. Spend some time with each other and don't rush these things. And if we begin to do these things, then I believe, based on what God has to say, that we will begin to insulate our relationships from, from even the possibility of considering being with anybody other than our spouse. Because the greatest way to affair-proof your marriage is to have a dynamic and loving relationship and all the rest takes care of itself. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this opportunity to be together to look at some real practical principles.
God, help us to see that, that, gosh, you know, Lord, none of us are completely innocent nor completely to blame when we run into difficult times in our relationships. God, we need to learn more about one another, about how you've made us, how you've created us. We need to spend time concentrating and learning more about what makes a woman tick, what makes a man tick, and understanding and doing something about those differences. God, help us to take this serious because it's a very serious threat in our society. Help us to do these things that we say that we should do and we just never make time to do. Help us start immediately even as we leave here today. And as our relationships grow closer together, we have no one but you to thank and to praise. And we just ask you to bless this time in Christ's name. Amen.